You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group, www.americantheatre.org. Good afternoon. Welcome to American Theatre's Offscript, our podcast on all things theatrical. I'm Rob Weiner, Kent, the Editor-in-Chief. My pronouns are he, him. I'm here with... Allie Pearson, I'm the associate editor here at American Theatre. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm calling in from the land of the months, Lenape in Queens. So excited to be here with you today. Uh, Rob, we got some features to talk about. Yes, we and we have, I just say right up front, this is a very special uh, uh, season preview edition where we're debuting our first top, top 10 and top 20 list. That's top 10 most produced plays of the coming season and top 20 most produced playwrights. Um, and we have some surprise guests in store for you any second now. Uh, so our season preview, which dropped this week, uh, included a number of pieces looking forward, uh, but inevitably also looking back. Uh, we had a wonderful deep dive by Frank Rizzo on Long Wharf, uh, which is leaving its longtime space after 57 years to be an itinerant theater in New Haven. And uh, there's a lot of questions raised about that, a lot of interesting opportunities. Along with that, we ran a sidebar with the new artist director, Jacob Padrone and managing director Kit Ingwe laying out some of their ideas for what this could do. And it, it, it does have impact beyond New Haven. It's, it could be a model or possibly a cautionary model for theaters to see what's what's next in this strange time that we're heading into. Uh, we Rob, also, you did, yeah, Rob, yeah, you did a yeah. wonderful Q&A um, with Broadway producers Ron Simmons and Hunter Arnold. Uh, together, they talk about the changes they've seen and been part of in the field and the changes that are still needed. You know, how do you cultivate an audience? How do you bring an audience into the theater? And how do you make them feel welcome? Um, all of these wonderful questions. It's a really great read. And I hope you take a dive into that one. Yeah, that's a really amazingly frank dialogue with some broader producers. Um, Robert O'Hara, the wonderful director and writer, is about to direct Raising the Sun. At the public, and we have a profile of him. Uh, he sort of debunks the idea that, that this is a new phase of his career, taking on classics. He did a long day's journey earlier. He's doing an opera uh, uh, that will come to the Met at some point, a revival of the Malcolm X opera. Um, if he's a fascinating guy, definitely worth looking into that one. Um, our writer Toby Zinman did a great feature on playwright and multidisciplinary artist Jennifer Kidwell. Um, She's currently produ uh, producing a play, Those With Two Clocks, at the Wilma, a definitely an eclectic read, and you can find out all about her. Um, uh, in my home city, my home state of Arizona, interesting little theater called Stray Cat, run by Ron May, basically took up the challenge to do an all-BIPOC uh, season, even though they're a small white-run theater, and sort of uh, threw, out the, threw down the gauntlet to other Arizona theaters and elsewhere to consider why don't they do the same? So that that's a fascinating piece. Um, and then we also, Ali. Yeah, we also uh, conducted a very fun survey um, from various theater makers across a lot of the nation's state capitals. Um, there's lots of representation there from Hawaii to Alaska to all sorts of places in between. Um, and we asked everybody what they're looking forward to this season and there's lots of great shout outs in there. So if you're interested in, in learning about what's to come, uh, take a look at what some of your fellow theater makers are excited about. Yeah, that survey is always really interesting. Uh, you know, and we have online listings. I mean, this is this season preview package of online stories is in lieu of our big fat season preview print issue that we used to do. So you can definitely look at, to see what all the theaters are doing uh, across the country. And from that data set that we used to gather, and now we are still gathering. We noticed about, what is it now, uh, 30 years ago? I can't do math anymore. Uh, basically in 1994, we started doing a top 10 most produced plays list. We thought, let's look at this. Oh, interesting. Uh, some plays rise to the top. Some plays get done a lot. Some, some plays stick around for, for years on these lists. Um, it's been an exciting way to, an interesting way to take a sort of snapshot of where the field is at and what they consider. Now, last one we did was in 2019 because uh, there was something of a season last year. There wasn't really a season in 2020 for most folks. And of course, there's a question about, as the Long Wharf story raises, uh, you know, the question of what is a season and full productions, is that the only way to go? But 
there are enough of them. And uh, uh, I should just say right up front, one interesting bit about the data we're working with. In 2019, 2018, there were about 2,200 shows that we considered full productions at TCG member theaters who reported their, season, their seasons to us. This year, that number's about 1,300. So it's down a bit, but that's still a robust uh, enough, you know, uh, uh, activity for us to find this data. And this data tells a story a little bit about what people are programming. Uh, and we'll talk a little more about the story, but let's get to the titles. Uh, we'll start from the bottom of our top 10 list as we always do. Uh, because of ties, there are actually 13 titles we're gonna list this year. So starting from the bottom, yeah, tied without, with, yeah, yeah. without further ado. Yes, <laughs> tied um, with six, 16 productions, the following nine titles are, Lloyd says the Chinese lady. Jackie Sibley's jury's Fairview. Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's Into the Woods. All right, the lifespan of a fact by Jeremy Carrigan and David Murrell and Gordon Farrell. Little Shop of Horrors by Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. A Native Gardens by Karen Zacharias. The Play That Goes Wrong by Henry Lewis, Jonathan Sayer, and Henry Shields. Steel Magnolias by Robert Harlane. Trouble in Mind by Alice Childress. So this, those are the ones tied at the at the bottom of our top 13 with six productions. Now tied with seven productions are the following three shows. Clue, adapted by Sandy Rustin from the film by Jonathan Lynn. Once, the musical by Enda Walsh, Glenn Hansard, and Marketa Irglova. Uh, which is adapted from the movie by John Carney. Sweat by Lynn Nottage. All right. So those are the top, you know, uh, slots two through 13, let's say. Uh, finally, the one you're all tightly waiting for, the most produced play of the 2023 season, 2022-23 20, season at TCG Member Theaters is, we're going to do this with a clip. If we can play that Oscar roller clip for the most produced play of the coming season. If for some reason the clip doesn't play, I'll just I'll just say the title. All right, well, I, I will break the suspense and we'll play the clip as soon as we can. The most produced play of the coming season will be Clyde's by Lynn Nottage. And here is a clip from it. Well, you want to know the last time I shed tears? When? Never. Oh, <laughs> it's true. Now, my mama used to stick me with her fingernail, kept it sharpened like a talon designed to inflict maximum pain. And every so often, she poked me just to see if I'd cry. You know how I reacted? Uh oh. Exactly as I'm reacting now. Yeah, but were you really listening? I was. And? Is there more you want to say, or can I get on with my life? That's it. That's your response. Look, I'm not indifferent to suffering, but I don't do pity. I just don't. <laughs> and you know why? Because dudes like you thrive on it. <laughs> It's your energy source, but like fossil fuels, it creates pollution. That's why. Well, damn, apologies. It's only my life. Oh, whatever. <laughs> That's an amazing Peter. That's the opening scene uh, from Clyde's. Uh, so, yeah, we'll reflect for a moment here. Uh, we're going to have, if we're lucky, Lynn on her lunch break. Lynn Nottis will join us. And, uh, uh, but also, we, sorry, we have another list to go through. The top 20 playwrights list, I almost forgot. So top 20 playwrights of the coming season, the ones with the most productions. Let's go through this list. We won't race through it, but again, reading up from the bottom, tied with seven productions. Allie. Alice Childress, Jackie Sibyl's Drury, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, Duncan McMillan, five of those credits being with a co-writer, Sandy Rustin, Lauren Yee. Right, and tied in the middle of that list with eight productions uh, of their work, each are Kate Hamill, familiar name, James Lapine, Henry Lewis, Henry Shields, and Jonathan Sayer of The Play That Goes Wrong, Lloyd Sa, and Enda Walsh. Getting higher up on the list, tied with nine productions, are Lucas Nath, with one credit being with a co-writer, Jonathan Larson, Karen Zacharias. And next up on the list is Ken Ludwig, No Ties. He's got 10 productions. Four of them are adaptations from the likes of Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie. That's Ken Ludwig with 10 productions. Getting closer to the top with 11 productions is Dominique Morisot. And then tied with no one appropriately enough on his own plane is August Wilson, 
with 14 productions. In our third spot on our top 20 most produced playwrights is Matthew Lopez with a total of 16 productions. And again, tied for the top spot are two of America's most prolific and honored playwrights with 24 productions each between them or each of them. Lauren Gunderson, nine of those are credits with uh, co-writer Margot Melkin and the indomitable Lynn Nottage. Uh, I can mention this is all online now. We posted that, it was scheduled to go up. Um, you can take a look at that list, uh, but again, uh, these lists actually. So Clyde's is at the top and Lynn Nottage is at the top tied with Lauren. I believe we have Lauren with us as well, but let, let's just take a few moments to talk about the lists between us, Allie, and then we'll bring on, we'll bring on our guests. Uh, Clyde's is an exciting, a striking, a striking choice. It's a, it's a comedy by Lynn Nottage, which only premiered last November. Behind me is the Helen Hayes Theater. I'm not actually sitting there. That's a, you might have guessed. That's a, that's a photo. Uh, the Helen Hayes Theater, second stage, it premiered there last November, and already started cropping up on on theater seasons this past summer. So that's an incredibly quick uh, turnaround, and it does square with our lists. Often in past years, have you know, been buzzy, if not if not award-winning uh, productions, if often award-winning productions on Broadway will get produced everywhere. Um, that's not the case though with the career of uh, Lauren Gunderson, who has had some productions here in New York, but has mostly built her career uh, from the West Coast and in and all points in between. Um, and one one similarity we we we're notorious for taking Shakespeare out of the running here. Uh, Shakespeare would have had 52 productions if we had counted him. Although interestingly, no single play of Shakespeare's would have made the top 10 list. And then that he has, that's one of the things he has in common with Lauren Gunderson, who has 12 different plays, 12 different titles uh, all around the country in the coming season uh, for a total of 24. And I, I think we could go to Lauren and, and, and chat with you a little bit, Lauren. Welcome you on. Hello, hey, Lauren. Hi. <laughs> so good to see you and congratulations. Your third Hi. time at the top of the list. Amazing. <laughs> what a fun Is thing. Is that right? I need to look this up. Yeah, the third time at the top of the list in 2019, 2017, you were at the top. You were number two in 2018, 2016. So like four years running in one or two slots. And I was talking to you earlier, you, you debuted on our list. Uh, in 2015 of the top 20 playwrights yeah. uh, down in the middle there uh, and just shot it to the top. Um, and I think Miss Bennett was on the top 10 list in 2017 and 2018. But again, one thing we noted that was really striking is you've got a lot of titles out there. So they're almost competing with each other. None of them are making the, the, the plays <laughs> list, but you're, you're, you're just getting productions everywhere. Tell us a little bit about, about that, building that career. Yeah, well, first, um, a uh, happy, gleeful uh, shout out to my co-writer, Margot Melkan, for mm -hmm. all of our Miss Bennett um, plays. And I mean, it's, I, what comes to mind is the power of regional theater, for me particularly. Mm -hmm. And certainly as it has in conversation with commercial productions, with Broadway, with New York, um, but in many ways, they are kind of different, different communities, different aesthetics, different tastes. There's a lot of overlap, of course, but that's what I um, feel most energized by are the conversations I'm having in, in regional theater and making strong connections to communities um, that I think the reason why I'm on this list is if they do one, maybe they'll do two, then they'll do another, then they'll do another. And yes, there are several to choose from. So if you want a history play, if you want a farce, if you want political, I got you. Um, <laughs> but it but it really is a way of, of having a long-term relationship um, with communities, with artistic directors that I know and trust, with actors that I, I always want to go back and work with. So it, it really is a compliment to um regionals and long long-standing uh colleagues and um yeah but what a what a joyful thing this is like the biggest honor is to be on on this list in particular because of what it means and what it confirms about um a really large really large impact and a really large conversation that i, I get to have and also i mean look at the rest of the list some of the greatest writers 
um, I think in the world are, are yeah. on that list. Lynn being my personal um, playwriting hero, <laughs> um, Karen Zacharias, I mean, Matthew's plays, it really is just a um, an incredible spread of just absolutely extraordinary voices, um, urgent voices, necessary, hilarious. Um, so bra brava American theater. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is so exciting. Um, you've got a lot coming up this year, which is great and also probably exhausting. Um, <laughs> but also like, what are, what are you excited about right now? What's, what's making you wanna keep going? Um, yeah. And what do you got coming up that, that you want to shout out? Well, I mean, so, so many um, younger writers, I got to be in conversation with them, certainly during the pandemic, when all of us were um, finding different ways to engage with that irrepressible instinct to make and talk about and enjoy <laughs> um, and be enlightened by theater. So I found myself really excited by some of these younger writers, um, Coming up, I uh, at the same time looked to my heroes, Paula Vogel, Sarah Rule, Lynn, uh, uh, of course, and seeing so many things. Oh, speaking of Lynn, look at that. Hello. <laughs> hey, oh, is, is Lynn here? Lynn oh, is. Lynn. Lynn, how are you? Oh, my God. I just saw that the Times put up a piece. Hey, Lynn, you're muted, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, I there you <laughs> How are you? A few minutes. I'm between classes and my class ran a little late. It is so good to see you. Congratulations for being on this list again. Uh, yeah, thanks so hi, much for, for hopping on to say hi today. <laughs> um, so as you know, uh, Clyde's and Sweat are both on the top 10 list, uh, both I think in slots number one and three, give or take, depending on how you define it. And uh, those two plays are, in, are, are are sort of connected, aren't they? In your, yeah, they're in your... definitely in, com uh, in conversation. Both plays take place in Reading, Pennsylvania, and Clyde's really came about um, from research that I started on Sweat and questions that I had that I felt I didn't answer in that particular play. And there's one character who journeys from Sweat into Clyde's. And it's a character who I felt in Sweat didn't have resolution and I was really interested in the question of forgiveness. It's mm. like, can someone who's created a really horrible act um, be redeemed? I gotta say, I know both those plays very well and I did not catch that 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 link. Yes. I just There's gotta pay better Jason, attention. Yeah, Jason yeah. is in both. Right, right, the, the, the tattooed fellow, the tattooed white guy. Wow, that's amazing. I wanted to just throw at you that there are 11 productions of Clyde, uh, Clyde's all over the country, uh, seven of Sweat, wow. four of four of Malima's Tale, Ooh. Uh, one of about 10,000 things I'm excited to see what they do with it there. Uh, and one, only one of probably one of my favorites of yours, by the way, Meet for a Star. Oh. Uh, oh yeah, no, sorry, one of Intimate Apparel. So <laughs> Intimate Apparel was the number one play uh, on our list in 2005. Wow. And then again, it was on the list in 2006, and it wasn't on the list again until 2016. So your career has just woven through, uh, you know, these lists, I say these lists, that's just one way we're sort of measuring, you know, there's a lot of other ways to measure success and, and impact in the American theater, but this is one way, one way to sort of give a snapshot of what people are programming and what they consider worthwhile. And Lauren, really briefly, you've got four productions of the Revolutionists, two in the Book of Will, two of Silent Sky, one each of Eight in the Engine, I and You, The Taming, Peter Pan and Wendy, Justice, and then there's your Jane Austen ones, not to put them on. <laughs> the three different productions of Christmas at Pembley, I think, right? Three different plays, that's amazing. Um, Lynn, I, I know you're also gonna talk next week at the Center for Fiction uh, about, is it mainly Malima's tale you're gonna talk about yeah, that? Yeah. Only, only Malima's tale. Only Malima's tale. Only Malima's yeah. tale. That's an interesting one, and that one seems like the fact that it's going to be a ten thousand things makes me think it's because it's it's staged in a less realistic mode. It can be done in different ways. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's smaller than the other plays. Smaller. Yeah, smaller in terms of the number of people that are. Well, in sure. Yeah, smaller in terms of cast. Yeah. Smaller in terms of cast. Yeah. You have to think about it that way, right? <laughs> I guess, by the way, that's one of my reasons, by the way, Be First Shark is done a little less frequently because it's such a big cast, yeah, right? And it's also a big production. Right, right. I want to ask a little bit about the Clyde's, was originally Floyd's and was at the Guthrie. 
I know you changed the name, but tell me a little bit about uh, it, it had a striking, not just birth, but then it was picked up immediately. I have to imagine that there were feelers out to these to, to theaters even before it went to the second stage. Would that be fair to say? Um, or no? um, yeah, there definitely was. I think I think yeah. that Carol Rothman, who's the artistic director of Second Stage, came to see Floyd's. Okay. Um, when it was at the, the Guthrie, and she responded to it, and and then invited us to do it at Second Stage. Right, but I'm, I'm I, what I'm saying is that Second Stage production was just last November. Yes. And it's already been picked up by theaters. I mean, that's one of the fastest turnarounds. I know a lot of times plays that are hits on Broadway. No, but, but I but I, I think because because it was Floyd's, you know, formerly called Floyd's yeah. Clyde's is that the play has actually been in the pipeline longer. Okay. Okay. And so I think that people read it prior to it going to second stage and knew I got it was you. a successful production at at um, the Guthrie. And so that the okay. play before it was on Broadway. So that's how it works. Yeah. I mean that, that, you know, so Broadway was the amplifier. Yeah, right. As it often is, and it often <laughs> yes. is. Well, one of, one of the other name we saw on this list that for her first time on this list is Alice Childress. Oh, you know, wow. who, that's so exciting! Isn't that awesome? Her, her trouble in mind, of course, that I'd seen it pop up over over the years. You know, uh, all credit to the companies that would do it, but it took the Broadway revival, or sorry, Broadway debut. Sorry, related Broadway premiere for it to become a most produced play. So Broadway is often the amplifier, as yeah. you say. Clyde's also streamed, uh, and I wonder. I also wondered if that was another way that it got in front of people. Uh, yeah, I think it did. I mean, one of the things for us, because Clyde's opened in the middle of the pandemic and we we're struggling to get audiences back into theaters and yeah. Omicron hit at the moment we were opening. And so the streaming really allowed people, not just in New York, but around the country to see the play. Mm -hmm. And um, I think ended up being quite successful for us. But also I, I do think it's a paradigm sh sh shift for Broadway theaters um, in that it was so successful and it gave it access to, I know I had some, um, I, I had some elderly relatives who would mm -hmm. never be able to come to New York City, who'd never seen my work before, who were able to stream the play. And it just, for me, was incredibly gratifying. But one of the really exciting things is that we were able to stream it for the first time live to Rikers Island. So you had people who were incarcerated who could see a play in real time. And then we wow. could have conversations about it. Wow. I, 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 I didn't know that that had happened. Um, uh, Sweat has also been a remarkably persistent title uh, in terms of uh, number of productions. Um, it's been around for a while. Of course, Pulitzer didn't hurt. Yeah, it was a number. It was a number two spot in 2018. It was on our, and you've been on our, put, helped put you on our list many times. Um, I don't know what more you can say about Sweat. I, I, I do think um, it also sells really well. Terry might tell you the play as as a play. People are buying the play to read, which is, which is a phenomenon. Um, well, I, I guess, I mean, what could I, I say about the play that I, I think that it remains very much in conversation with the moment is yeah. that it was a play that is about, you know, the corruption of the American narrative and the ways in which we become stratified to get um, across race and, and class. And I think that's where we are. Yes. <laughs> and, and trying to negotiate this moment, this really strange fraught moment. And I don't think there are a lot of plays that are multicultural mm. and they're specifically looking at multiculturalism on the stage. I think that there are plays that are looking about race, yes. uh, looking at race. I think that the plays that are looking at class, but few that are looking at so the the difficult and complicated nature of living in a multicultural society. It's true. I just wrote a piece yeah. about how there are very few of those uh, plays. Yeah. So that's why I think it's still being done. And Lynn, something I love so much about your process is is how much of your your work and your writing involves talking to people, and mm. involves you know going places, whether it's PA or or New York or any of the places where where you've gone to draw from. But um, how much of that sits with you, you know, when you're when you're seeing the play performed again? Do you do you see people again in them? Do you? Yeah, 
And but I not only see people in them, but a lot of times the people who I've spoken to come back to see the plays again, and so I continue to have dialogue with them. But for for me, engagement's really important, not just before the play, but after the play. I'm interested in ways to reach to reach audiences and in, in and to um, to bring bring theater in non traditional ways to communities. And so it's not just about interviewing, it's about how we invite people into the space or how people invite us into their spaces. Yeah. I do remember you you had that installation in Reading that you did, another sort of offshoot of Sweat. Uh, I forget the name of it, but our, well, Allison comes. What was it? This, this is Reading, yeah. Allison, my, uh, Ali's predecessor in, the, in my colleague, she is from Scranton, and so she went back to Reading, or she went to that and it really reflected on her, how it resonated with her personally. Um, it, it was it was incredible. I have to say, for me, it remains the highlight of my theatrical career. Really, the installation it you did. Was, it was the most difficult thing I've ever done, huh. but it and it. Is not hyperbole to say that it exceeded my expectations in terms of impact, um, and that we were able to engage community and create opportunity and actually transform space. And yeah, I feel very proud of it. I think when I was first talking to you about Sweat many years ago, when it was still at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, you were talking about how you wanted to do that. You know, had this this gestation of this, and I feel like. I know that other community-based theaters, uh, Cornerstone, those kind of places, uh, uh, Irondale, they really do feel like they want to put roots down in a, in, in a community and go beyond what they can do, quote, just with the play, right? And really make it land with the community. Um, I, I'm struck by um, when you when ruined, there was ruined and then by the way of me first struck, and a lot of conversation then was about how drama and then comedy. And um, and I feel like sweat is sweat has its humor in it, but it's very, it's heavy, it's it's yeah. serious. And then this Clyde's I feels like it sort of hits a sweet spot. Between, it's it's a comedy. It's a comedy. But uh, you know, it's got a comedy with bite. Let's say no no pun intended with the sandwiches. But uh, uh, and I wonder if you do you do you think of that in terms of I want to vary it up. I think you've talked about you want to I want to write something. We're on a farce next. No, now I want to write tragedy. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's like the yin and the yang. It's, mm -hmm. it's working both sides of self, but also being really conscious that you can't always dwell in that dark place. And particularly after sweat, I felt like I needed to create something that was an invitation to a space that felt more optimistic. <laughs> yes, yes. And joyful <laughs> and community minded. Um, because sweat ends in a place um, that's somewhat ambiguous in which there are no yeah. answers to the, the questions, whereas I feel like Clyde's really ends with an exhale. Yeah. And a release of, of, of energy that I think is welcoming to audiences. Lynn, can I, can I ask you a quick question about theatricality? Because so much of... Um, I mean, I've been impacted deeply by so many of your plays, but what I always walk away with is visceral moments um, that I'm curious about how those moments of theatricality are created in kind of in conversation with directors and actors, or are you the kind of writer that puts all of that in a stage direction? I'm thinking of, you know, the beginning of Act Two of Ruined, the coming out at the end of, of Sweat with that incredible reveal, which sent the whole audience gasping and um and then the last moment of of Clyde's being such a like exciting and surprising <laughs> flare literally um <laughs> a delightful um moment I I just wonder how you think about that I do I mean I actually thank you for that question that is such something to, to ponder and I think a lot of about about it and I you know what I call it is the intangible moment mm -hmm is that moment in which the audience feels like something emotional and transformative mm -hmm. and revelatory is happening, but they can't quite articulate what it is. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's when you get that visceral re- reaction. And I try and embed it in every single play. Is is um, and um, my organizing principle when I'm writing is usually a metaphor, and mm. it's like how do I make that metaphor come to life in a way that people receive it. Mm. No, that's great. Thank you. So the release at, uh, at the end of Clyde's, it's like, it's it's fire and release. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing. But you know what? I'm, I'm going to have to jump because I... Then it's so great to... I know, it's so great to take take time. Yeah, and thank I, you, and I appreciate it. And I'm so happy to be on this list with um, Lauren. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks so, so much, much Lynn. Lynn. And uh, we'll see you next week at the Center for Fiction. Yes. Okay. Bye now. Bye. Um, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I had other questions about clients, but you know, they'll be answered to the production. I, I always wonder, and this is a question for someone who's frequently produced, um, you know, how much of new productions you see or how much you just sort of let it go. And it's like your work is out in the world living for you. You know, your children are there living their own lives or whether it's like, I, I imagine Lynn gets invited to all kinds of openings of her work and, and revivals. And uh, is that the, the same? First handful of them. I'm, I'm really involved in the first one to three. Okay. Um, partly because every single one of those plays from the first production to the second goes through some big change. It may not seem big, but to me it is <clears throat> very intentional, um, essential um, understanding that you learn from a production in part because that first production, there comes a point when we start making decisions for that opening night and not decisions that if I had another two months, I would yeah. totally rewrite act two, <laughs> but I don't right. They're right. opening tomorrow. So we're just going to tweak and we're going to make it work. But when you have the gift of that second and third productions, which is part of why those second and third productions, the companies that do those are the heroes of the American theater in terms for playwrights, because that difference between production one and production two um, is vast. That's when the play goes from like, okay, there's the play. We got it. We got it now. Publish it. Other people can do it. And so after that point is when that wonderful, to borrow Lynn's word, transformative moment for me is knowing that what I've done is not actually create the play that is perfect for me anymore. It is now a blueprint that make it perfect for you. <laughs> make Put your community on stage in it. Bring your actors' gifts and talents and uniqueness to that role. It's not about making sure my vision is absolutely exact anymore. It is, mm-hmm. it's yours now. Go forth. <laughs> right, Let me know how it goes. Right. Let me know if you have any questions. But, um, you know, that that's like the gift. Not Novelists don't do that. Filmmakers don't do that. Mm-hmm. Playwrights say, I've made a thing that is designed to not have me involved at a certain point which is um, like a, a wonderful alchemy to be like, this was so mine and now it's so yours and bravo. <laughs> yeah. Um, Lauren, I am a literature nerd and I suspect that you might be one too. I mean, you've tackled Walt Whitman, uh, Peter Pan, you know, lots of Jane Austen. And I'm just <laughs> curious, A, like, what's it like bringing aspects of the page to stage? Like, where is that magic for you? And then is there a different author that you might one day want to explore? Ooh, gotta think about that. Yeah, I mean, I I do think there is, um, especially at this time, making sure that audiences feel really welcome back. And part of it, I think, is because they some audiences really like to know what they're gonna see. And so an adaptation offers that. It's like, mm. this is gonna be a version of Peter Pan, not one you've ever seen before, not one that is problematic, <laughs> hopefully. Um, <clears throat> Jane Austen, similar. Oh man, I love a, I love a, I love a love story. Come to see, you know, one of Kate Hamill's beautiful adaptations, or Margot's and I's more like fanfic, where we we go forward in the shows. <laughs> um, but the ideas of you 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 know some version of what you're going to get, which I think is a comfortable and a very reasonable ask, um, especially if you're bringing family members or kids. Or I, I'm a I'm a mom, so I kind of would like to know what I'm going to bring um, my my boys to, just because I want them to be great audience members and then to have a fabulous experience at the theater, so I can turn them into theater nerds like me. Um, <clears throat> but 
it's also really fun and it's a very distinct challenge because what you have with literary adaptation is figuring out a novel works very different than a play. So you have to do what a play does really well, which is find like three incredible, decisive moments of change, of, of pivot, of decision, of action, of, again, Lynn's word, transformation, and have to build the story around that, which means you got to cut out all the rest, can't have a ton of introspection that novels can go into and and indulge in that wonderful poetry and all that interiority that doesn't quite translate. And some people have found beautiful ways um, to do it, but you know, plays need that engine. We need to go, we need to make a choice. We need to see the moment of decision. And so that means a lot of spending a lot of time with some of my favorite stories and figuring out what are the exact moments of action and decision and where the domino falls, um, you know, to use David Ball's metaphor. So that's, that's the great fun of that, but it also feels like I get to hang out with Mr. Darcy <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot longer than maybe healthy, but you know what? We're, <laughs> we're having fun. It's great. I, I will say Margo and I, every time that we get involved in the production, which we're just about to do uh, Georgiana Kitty, which is the third of the trilogy. So we're like wrapping up that series. We just rewrote act two massively. And every time we do that, we just get to be like, these plays are just fun. <laughs> I just yeah. want to hang out. It's, it's, it's great. <laughs> so it, it is a nice, change um from something like uh you know like the catastrophist which is really intense and some of these other plays which have just big hearts but i really like to break the big hearts too so you can go like oof get ready for the beginning of act two of book of will get get the get the kleenex out um whereas all the jane austens are like delightful the stakes are delightful the problems are delightful the solutions are delightful everyone has a beautiful dress on it's great news great news <laughs> We did have a, a question from Facebook, actually, uh, Barzan Akhavan asked, uh, Barzan, hi. yeah, he asked, uh, and I think we talked about this before, like in our pre, pre-show talk, uh, he wanted to know how many times you topped the list. And I think, I don't know, did, did we say that in the broadcast? I can't remember what? now, it's all in a swirl. But in any case, you topped our list uh, in 2017 and we're part of our very first we were our very first live announcement of these these lists from the drama book live from the basement of the old drama book shop, mm-hmm. 2017. That was your Shakespeare in Love was the top play, and you were the top yeah, playwright. Right. And Book of Will, I think, uh, I don't know, it was one of the top plays, but it was one of your plays that year, I believe, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly. Um, and then 2019, you also topped the list, uh, and this year you're tied with with with, with uh, Ms. Nottage at the top. But uh, that's three years running. And Barzan, if you're interested. Lauren was uh, number two on our list on 2018 and 2016. I think uh, one year it was Lucas was ahead of you and the other year August. Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting to me is that you've mentioned uh, uh, the wonderful writers you're in the company of. Mm-hmm. When we started doing these lists, uh, you know, there was a, there were a lot of uh, Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, God bless them. Uh, I will have to say, and this is, there are some people, you know, traditionalists who, who don't love this. I think Terry Teachout used to sort of gripe about this um, and, you know, rest in peace, love Terry. But he would often look at these lists and go, where's the Oscar Wilde? And where's the, you know, those plays are being done. But that top 20 list of most produced playwrights is almost entirely living, working playwrights, right? Ooh. So the only one, like, of course, Shakespeare's our big exception, uh, August Wilson, uh, and then the other one this year, Jonathan Larson made it onto the list. Uh, yeah, that's and we great. consider him a dramatist because he wrote the books of his uh, his shows. And it, you know that has a lot to do with Rent being persistent, but also Tick Tick Boom because of the movie. I think a lot of folks movie. are doing yeah, yeah. are doing that. So, um, you know, and that's that's a pretty exciting list. I think what an amazing thing. I mean, that's yeah. awesome to yeah. to feel like the American theater, both regionally and the powerhouse that New York is, is turning to living writers. Which, in some ways, of course, we are right. in as we always are, unprecedented times, politically, virology wise, um, you know, climate wise, there's so much that is unknown. And in some ways it is, of course, we need the voices of this moment to help us figure out the way through, even if the voices of this moment are writing about the past. Yeah. um, That is, that is the, the, the necessary perspective that, that we need to. And that's theater's best work is saying, how do we become the best citizens we can be? How do we analyze right. stories then, now, and in the future to figure out how to be alive on this planet together? Like how 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 does humanity work right now? That's what theater's the best at doing. Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's right. Uh, like, that's, that's great. That's reflected in the list too. So go team. I think it is. We we used to do a uh, we were for years we did a, a gender parity uh, uh, numbers. We crunched those numbers to see how 
how uh, women playwrights are, and non-binary players were faring in relation to men. Uh, and the numbers were getting better. They were in the right direction. They were still not 50-50. <clears throat> but one of the byproducts of that, we often looked at it in terms of period, of which periods the plays were from. Mm -hmm. um, and not to excuse the past for forgetting about all the wonderful women writers from th those days, but just to put it in context. And if you looked at that, one of the one of the unintended byproducts of those lists we would do was we would see that the percentage of plays, be, new plays being done in general by anyone was very high. It was like 60% of productions in the country. I think people most, most people think of, of, and that includes, that list includes Shakespeare. Uh, that percentage does at least. I think most people think theaters and museum, theaters, old stodgy, you know, traditional. There, there is a great tradition of theater and that's part of what theater is about. It's about a memory and, and ritual and, and, and the past. But I just gotta say that American theater has been for most of my lifetime, sort of a new play, a place where new plays are made all the time. Now they don't always get picked up again. They don't get the second and third productions. They probably all deserve. Maybe there's too many plays, but you can't argue that we're just doing all plays by old dead dead white guys, right? Um, yeah. uh, I wanted to ask you, since you, this is obviously, you're, you're doing very well with many productions, um, but the overall number is down uh, yeah. of productions. And it, did, have you felt any sense I know you you did a, a play that streamed uh, the catastrophes during the pandemic. Do you have a sense of from where you sit of how things are going, how things are looking? Do you hear from from theater folks? Yeah, I it's mean, really it's really tough right now. It's nerve wracking. Mm. Um, and even if the productions are are mounted, the audiences in some places are really slow to come back. Um, I've been really lucky to be working in London um, a bunch in the last couple of years. And certainly since the outset of the pandemic, when things were safe enough to travel and starting that work up again, it is very different uh, over there. I'm sure there's certain uh, American communities that are more um, vivaciously returning um, to the stage, but London is packed. <laughs> um, COVID is still here, <laughs> first, first and foremost. Um, and I don't know why. Um, part of it is, I think, a long history of theater going there, where some cities, um, it is more of, of, a, of, a, of a top of mind choice that has to be made to go to the theater, where in London, it seems like, of course you go. Absolutely. Why would you not? It, it's, uh, of course. So I think that's maybe what we're seeing is some of the cities like New York that have that culture of going um, and uh, the the tourism of it, um, which I know ebbs and flows. And I think that's part of why we're seeing, I mean, it's so painful every time a show closes, a Broadway show, of course, but theaters themselves are closing. And so I, I think all of us being very vigilant to how do we rebuild um, in meaningful ways? And it's not just remake, right? We're not trying to go back. We've learned enough to know that we're not going back, we're going forward, but we still need our companies and our artists and um, and those uh, community, um, the, the reasons um, to give the community um, to come back so that they feel safe, seen, affirmed and excited and, and ready to be enlightened. And it's making, it's making me thinking a, lo a lot of things. Part of it is like, I'm, I'm from San Francisco and we're not actually known as a theater town, but we have so much theater here and it's so good. Um, I, I, I think of things like, how does San Francisco say, hi, we're, we're a theater town like Chicago. You know, is there, is this a time to kind of, it sounds a little cheesy, but to rebrand certain places, Denver, an amazing place for, for new plays, Atlanta, chock full of a fabulous new work. So if we think about theater, American theater as just Chicago, New York, um, I think we're losing out on how much of a, of a landscape we're actually sitting on in terms of incredible and unique art that represents our big, weird, complex country. Um, so I, I think of stuff like that. Um, I think of rebranding theater as like, theater is the modern church. I mean, to so many of us, it, it really is where we go for conversations about morality. I mean, lens plays are a perfect example of that. Conversations about, about ethics and citizenry and humanity um, and trying to, to make sure that we, when we talk about theater, we give it its full credit. And we talk about theater towns and, and places where we find it, we really come and like swing for the fences about what we mean by theater, why it's so important, why it's more than a night out and more than a distraction. It is an essential part of civilization building and humanity building. And God, do we need that right now? So I'm, I'm ready to be like 
let's let's cheerlead for theater in every <laughs> form and in every way. Um, not just the self-serving part because I love theater and I, I'm first and foremost an audience member who um, goes back to the theater as much as I can. So I, I want to like tell the story differently. You know, what, while, while we write plays, let's also tell the story of, of this incredible, ancient and meaningful art form. I don't know if that answered any bit of the question you asked, uh, but that's clearly what that. I wanted to talk about. So all of it and, and more, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> how does, ooh, Idris has a question too. Looks like, how does the UK treat its theater makers? That is interesting oh, wow. because I think they get paid less, but supported more um, hmm. because there are so much, um, I think that there is, uh, again, I don't, I don't actually know because I, I haven't talked to the, um, I haven't looked at, looked at Congress, but, but I've heard um, that actors get paid less, but there is so much theater and so mm -hmm. much, um, so much option and um, agency given to theater makers, because again, there is just such an appetite and so, so many um, things. So the, the actors that I've been working with, partly it's like a small place, like England's small. And yeah. so you get, you know, amazing actors because yeah, they live right up there and sure they're in all the Marvel movies, but they love theater and they'll come down and do a reading for a day. You know? So it's this weird thing of like, everyone really craves and wants to do theater. And so it's, yeah. it's beloved, right? Um, but it is interesting. There's no, the, the like, there's no union for actors um, over there. So there's not the strict um, uh, stage management take, have to take a 10, have to take a, you know, that, that kind of. Well, I think there is a there is a union, but there's much it's it's different. It's much yeah, different. It's, right? it's much it's different. smaller. In fact, yeah. it doesn't have those regulations that are are, yes. are very helpful and supportive, but sometimes can get in the way of a creative flow. Mm. And I think they're more sensitive to like let's make sure the flow is maintained, and we'll make sure that we take care of the actors. I'm sure that is abused, and it and shouldn't be. But right. but anyway, right. I, I'm right. finding a lot of different conversations about uh, about it. Um, and there is, of course, a conversation about London being a place where there's so many sources of criticism. So we don't have one <clears throat> major publication that says if a show that proves or, you know, makes mm -hmm. a show close or not close. So over there, there's, you know, two dozen. And I think that actually helps in terms of people finding the shows that they really want to get behind and finding the shows that mean something to them um, mm. and having, you know, it makes the theater really accessible because shows will run forever. And if you don't like it, that is totally fine. You've got 17 other things to see that exact same hour, that same day. Um, yeah. So I think that helps with the vibrancy, the conversation, the diversity of voices that get supported. Um, so anyway, mm. I've, I'm a big fan over there. <laughs> Yeah, I hadn't heard that before. I do think that's got to be related to if there's an audience for it, there's going to be an audience for the to read about it as well. Yes, exactly. Uh, with a smaller audience interested, it's just harder to. Yeah, I know from being on the journalistic side, it's harder to get the interest. Uh, yeah. Also, just like again, the yeah. shout out of the yeah. other writers on this list, I'm like my God, yeah. Jackie Sibley's Drury's Fairview. Yeah. the greatest play <laughs> ever. It's um, amazing. Matthew Lopez yeah. in the inheritance. I mean, speaking of just being a theater cheerleader for a second like these plays stopped stopped my heart and restarted yeah. it at the same time and the idea of like we are living in such an age of playwriting right now um and such a diversity of of kinds of stories stories with just the biggest heart with the sharpest teeth with enormous muscle um god like what what a time to see theater <laughs> it's, so I'm, I'm i'm just so grateful just looking at the top 20 plays and the other playwrights on the the top list it just makes you want to go <laughs> buy every ticket to everything because there's so much to see. It's so good. It's all just it's, so. I have a question. Did Fairview play it in the Bay Area? Well, I, I know it Berkeley. did. But... Yeah, Berkeley Rep. Ber Berkeley Rep. Okay, wow. Mm -hmm. I find um, it fascinating the way the way plays that start at like Soho Rep and small places here go. I mean, even even on the case of Oklahoma from Circling Square to the Amundsen, but, the, but, but places that go there and then they end up at, at big Lord theaters, I think it's fascinating. I would love to see. I mean, they it played well, obviously, right? People, yeah. people, yeah. That's oh, amazing. yeah, yeah. And it's a complex play. Like, it, it asks a lot of the audience. And, yes. um, but, you know, it's it, like looking at some of these other, I mean, the Chinese lady, I haven't gotten to see that yet because I, I almost flew to New York to see it because it just looks so good. Um, but, you know, like looking at Native Gardens, I mean, that play has done so much mm -hmm. um, for, for so many communities. And Karen is just one of the titanic American writers. I mean, 
Trouble in Mind. Wow. I'm so like, what a journey for that play to go from the almost of Broadway basically being rejected because they were trying to whitewash it to then sit sitting in that audience in Broadway hearing the short version. I thought it was so smart of them to start that show saying, here's what happened to this play. It was amazing. Off Broadway. People loved it. Then the producer said, we're taking it to Broadway if you change it. And she said, no. And then what is it? 40 years later, 50 years later, the play. 1955 is when it was supposed to it played off Broadway. It's supposed to go in '57, I think, with the, the Broadway production was ready, and it didn't happen. Now, I've seen, it, again, it's it's turned up over the years. I think not Arena, maybe it was Arena. It was a, a DC theater, Roundhouse, maybe. It's it's made it's been around. It's like I remember, oh, and I keep hear I kept hearing about it, and it's like finally the you know roundabout put it on a stage. You know, I was just checking to see Capitol stage. I, I think are they in Sacramento? They're doing Chinese ladies this season. So maybe you'll have a chance to see that. Yeah. I'm looking, we we put a list of of where, where all these plays are happening. So people can. I'm looking at it now. I'm like, okay, great. I have to buy a lot of tickets as should all of you. (laughs) And, you know, a little shout out since um, Idris is there in the comments, just a little shout out to plays for young audiences, which is, I know is great charge and has been the source of a lot of my career is starting in, um, theater for young audiences, both mm-hmm. in Atlanta and at the Kennedy Center, and finding my collaborators, my long-term collaborators, Brie Loudermilk. I met with our very first play musical together at the Kennedy Center, and consistently, she has been my colleague forever since that moment. And what right. Idris is doing with plays that blend speaking to kids and not—it'd be interesting to have a list of of most produced um, theater for young, young audiences plays because it seems like now, obviously, mm-hmm. I have children, so I give much more of a crap than I used to. <laughs> I'm like, I need great plays for these kids. I need great, I need literature. I need dramatic literature for my children. Um, well, so it's interesting. Uh, we we do have TOA members who are part of TCG. We don't do a special list. Joseph Robinette, who's adapted a bunch of uh, E.B. White, yeah. almost made, he's like sick. He almost made the top 20 list this year. I was intrigued to see. I did yes. see a couple productions of Idris's uh, Boy Who Kissed the Sky as Jimi Hendrix yes. musical. Yes. It's going to have a two productions in the coming season. There's a lot. I just want to say, and I say this in my piece about this, this is just one way of looking at the field at the sort of, you know, the the, the, play, the plays that a lot of these are doing is one way to tell the story, but there's so much happening. So much else, yeah. Uh, at these, at, at all the theaters that produced your work uh, and, and, and will produce your next work and Lynn's work, they're also producing a bunch of new work that may never make it to a list, but is, is the right play for the community they're doing, that they're in right now. So, and we cover the heck out of all that stuff too, but this, just this once, just this one time a year, and it's, it is great to have it back, even though things, I'm, we're not saying uh, everything's back the way it was, but it's good to have this one marker and measure of of, yeah. of theater vibrancy um, back to celebrate, you know, just to lift a, lift a glass to that, you know? Indeed, here, here. and my coffee cup is still here it's still full um yeah well thank you for bringing the list back and doing all you do for for theater for the conversation about it for all of us making it it, y'all are the kind of dna of the whole thing so thank you american theater thank you rob thanks well thank you lauren uh for for joining us thanks for doing your plays (laughs) keep writing (laughs) keep keep the theater in business doing my best um thanks y'all bye all right take care everybody until next time oscar you want to play us out